0: If you're early, you got a super innovative, super cool product, and people want it, it's not necessarily gonna help you cross the chasm or that you're solving a problem. Right. And I think that's that's where I always learn now as an entrepreneur it's like what problem are you solving? And is it big enough?
1: Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallro. would your perspective on life change if you were uprooted from your homeland as a child? That question confronted Peter Matacek when his parents fled communist Czechoslovakia in 1984, defecting to the West when Peter was just nine years old. After months in a refugee camp, they made a new home in Canada. In this episode of In the Thick of It, Peter shares how that childhood trauma shaped his optimism and motivation to help others as an entrepreneur. From starting his own computer repair business to launching an interactive video production company years too early to now operating a video creation service for small business, he's persevered through failures and learned difficult lessons about sales, funding, leadership, and more. While the entrepreneurial path hasn't been easy, Peter credits his persistence to a passion for empowering people that traces back to the hardships he experienced at a young age. Joining me on In the Thick of It today is Peter Matacek with In-House Video. Peter, thank you so much for being our guest today.
0: Scott, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here.
1: So your growing up was interesting, in fact, probably very different from any of our other guests. Why don't you kind of just lead off with that?
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I was uh, born in 1975 in Czechoslovakia, so in Prague during uh, pretty much the height of communism. And so my parents decided to defect in 1984 uh, when I was nine. Uh, I had no clue. Uh, They couldn't tell me from obviously just I was old enough to be interrogated, so that was kind of an interesting thing. And then uh, we uh, ended up in a refugee camp for three months in Yugoslavia and then landed in Ottawa in Canada just before winter, a good Canadian winter. And uh, it was good. I spoke three languages and none of them were English. So yeah, that was kind of my, hey, welcome to Canada. <laughs> but yeah, English is not one of your languages. So that that was kind of my, uh, my start to uh, a very interesting life.
1: Hearing you say Ottawa the way that you did, you've clearly adapted to the dialect very, very easily.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I can't spell. My grammar's horrific. I think that's why I'm in video, because that doesn't count. <laughs> All my customers and everybody knows, Nope. Pete can't spell. It's okay. But yes, the, uh, the English language, yeah, you kind of do have to pick that up.
1: Yeah. You said you spoke three languages, none of them English. What languages did you speak and do you still speak them?
0: Yeah, so I still speak Czech actively, like with my uh, with my folks. That was the primary. The secondary language was a mandatory; was Russian. You had to do that part of the communism infrastructure, and then I picked up uh, Polish, and then so and a lot of we were in the refugee camp. There was kids from everywhere, and so uh, Yugoslavian is kind of a little bit similar towards it. But I had three fluent ones, and unfortunately, like Russian, you lose relatively quickly. But I do still speak Czech. Yeah,
1: how similar are those three? They're not. Not at all.
0: <laughs> no, Russian. I think like uh, Czech and Slovak are a little bit. Uh, the Polish has some, you know, this it's, it is the Slavic kind of languages, but Russian is relatively different. I mean, just from, and Czech in itself, I think it's like the seventh hardest language. It's got crazy, um, like crazy things. So you speak to somebody differently if you know them or you don't. Like that's one of the things, right? And then different things will have feminine, masculine, neutral, like for objects. So it's quite a complicated task, right? But yeah, they're quite different.
1: Nine years old, moved to Canada. Yeah. What was that first day of school like being the kid that didn't speak English?
0: Yeah, I've done a lot of work in therapy around that one. Uh, (laughs) That's a lot of that stuff. I definitely remember seeing my first fruit stand and like my first station wagon. Like that stuff just didn't exist, right? And I remember in school, you just like you're like, I have no idea what's going on. And I remember specifically learning, I so ESL. So every time there were kind of English stuff, you went to ESL. You know, English is a second language. And I specifically remember it was really hard to learn the word the. Like I just couldn't get it. It was just like one of those things you couldn't get it. So I, I remember those little snippets, but I think it took me until I really. I remember. We moved to the West Coast when I was 15, and grade 10 was like the first time I kind of felt, hey, I'm into the little bit of the culture. Still like listening to lyrics and music and English, forget it. I think I learned that maybe 10 years ago, but that was like, I just remember, you know, sitting down like, I have no idea what's going on. You just have like, you're clueless.
1: Do you remember what you were like as a student in Czechoslovakia or?
0: Yeah, definitely. You're it's fear. It's a fear based system. So my parents weren't in the communist infrastructure. Uh, they were quite against it uh, that's you know that's probably another podcast so you're fear based you're it's a fear based system fear of the government of course in grade three I wasn't allowed a's because my parents weren't in the communist party
1: wait so you're saying if you aced everything the teacher was still not allowed to give you an a correct
0: yeah no no so it's fear like I think it took me not until like five or eight years ago I managed to calm my body down of not getting spike of anxiety when cops drove by. Because I distinctly remember when I was seven years old, being in a tank just in the middle of the street. And this thing's fully loaded. It's not a It's like, hey, come on in. It's like you're in this big tank as a kid. You're like, okay, it sounds cool. No, it's a fully loaded ammunition driven tank with guys with machine guns just driving in the middle of the street. That's norm. So there's just, I remember you know, I never, even in high school, I think I skipped two classes my entire high school career. It's just out of fear. It's like you don't do it. You don't talk. <laughs> you know, it's a fear-based mentality, right? So I think that was it was I think I had the great teachers and that they were there and a lot of kind of good friends and stuff. But learning was like, you're there to learn. You gotta learn. You gotta rigour trade. Otherwise, you know, uh, it's not gonna end well.
1: How long did that fear last? I know you mentioned still reacting if you saw a police car or something like that but like in adolescence did that fear follow you all the way through your primary education
0: uh it's still here okay it's interesting i'd like four uh, five events between the age of seven and nine i got really interested in the last like five to ten years of like neuroscience and childhood kind of behavior stuff and there were between age of seven and nine five events so my grandfather passed away relatively quickly that was one i was kind of isolated i had meningitis i was isolated in a in a hospital for a week by myself. And so it was it was a white room with bars on the window with nothing but a ticking clock. Not good. So it's just this fear based and then uh, my uncle got killed by the KGB. That was another one. So this is like a movie. And so and a couple more and then of course emigration I lost everything, I lost the, you know the friends and everything and then I lost the languages. So what happened was in my psyche was a fear of loss integrated it which actually also impacted my businesses. It's a fear of loss that's integrated in the subconscious. And even to this day, I'm trying to live not in chaos because my body as a, as a kid was used to chaos. Like everything's going to fail. Everything's going to go away. The loved one. So this subconscious fear base. So I had, you know, a fear of like writing. Uh, I went to university and I wrote papers. And I was like, yeah, I was sweating. And back then, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. It was just a four fight or flight scenario, right? And so it was an interesting thing that literally probably in the last like three or four years, and I'm 48 that I'm really now starting to rewire, you know, understand it. And so it's a gift and a curse. I think I'm also meant to help people that in that future because I've done through so much. So that's kind of my next quest of training and learning. That's what I'm really excited to. But to answer your original question, it's still like I see subconscious patterns coming up. I'm super hyper aware of them now, but that's still from the past of like growing up where you're growing up. And it's also because it was generational. Like my parents got affected by it. My stories of what that system does to generations. So you have all that stuff and it's uh, it's been a pretty good battle. <laughs> to, I say the biggest battle in the entrepreneur from my perspective is between my left and right ear.
1: <laughs> I think that's the case for most of us.
0: Right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Do you ever think about what life would be like today if you were still there? Yeah, it's a good question. You
0: know, it's interesting because in 1991, everything kind of fell.
1: Is that when it became the Czech Republic?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's what officially. So like in 19, you know, 1940s kind of communism started coming in. In 1968, communism said, screw you, we're locking everything down. That was 1968. So in a matter of like two days, two or three days, it was just, that was it. They locked it down. And then from that 19, so 1970s, you got for yeah, 30, 35, 40 years of communism. So everything fell, but it took a long time, right, to review that. So honestly, I don't know. I think it wouldn't have been good because my mom wasn't allowed to go to medical school because her father was not in the Communist Party. My dad couldn't go to university, had to do it at night school because his parents weren't in it. So we would have for sure, we were spied on. So we were targeted, right? So any you as a kid, you don't know, like what, how, how does the system work? You know, if I know now how the system works, you can work with the system, but I don't think it wouldn't been a pleasant situation because I would have just had to do, you just, you're just forced to do something because of your beliefs or your, your history. Like my grandfather had a, a very successful company of building, um, appliances. He had 150 employees, woke up one day and lost everything. They took him away, they threw him into jail. So, thanks. No, can't do that. You know, grandmother died of a heart attack in the hospital, and that was it. So, like that year, as soon as you have that, I nobody could have foreseen that 91 was going to happen. And I think it would have been a really hard life. And I, you know, my parents started from scratch from nothing. And I know why they did it because even though my, you know, upbringing was hard and everything, it was just, it's not freedom. Right. And I think I talked a lot of, You know, a lot of, uh, you know, immigrants either you understand or you don't. (laughs) Texas understands it, right? (laughs) But i mean like, it's a very good question. I've thought about it often. I think it would have been a dark road. And then after 91, you know, lots of upheaval, right? Lots of opportunities if you take advantage of the system, but that's not how I roll.
1: I did a study abroad trip when I was in college. And after our coursework was over, that was all in Italy. And there was a group of us that backpacked around We spent several days in Prague, beautiful city, loved it, but I don't know, maybe it's just the westernized mentality that I've got and, you know, the spy shows that I've watched, but there was something that still felt a little bit eerie. And I will never forget, all over Europe in the big cities, there are t-shirt vendors and people selling all kinds of, you know, memorabilia and souvenirs. I will never forget, there was one shirt that said, the KGB is still listening. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm still not sure if that was meant to be like tongue in cheek, kind of funny, or if it was like, nope, this is for real.
0: It's very much for real. Yeah. The stories my parents told me, and they were interesting. They were, my parents were in theater. Uh, um, it's like a blacklight theater for like 13 years. And they had an opportunity to actually travel. And I remember my mom, my mom telling me stories, how they traveled to Russia and they're like, you know, the hotel room that you're staying at they would freak out the KGB because they would stop talking because everybody's listening. So they would stop talking in the hotel room. And then two minutes later, they're knock on the doors. Like, "Um, we're moving you to a different hotel room. uh, So please come with us because they thought the mics weren't working. (laughs) Wow. This is a story after story after story. And it's real. It's not a movie. And this is normal life. This is not, and I think for the longest time in me, I was like, I was telling these stories to friends and anything, yeah, this is what happened, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember distinctively, this is about five or 10 years ago, I'm like, man, my life was screwed up. Like, that's not normal. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like you got this realistic, it's like, that's not normal. So, but yes, so all that stuff would well, be surprised if it's still there. Right. But surveillance systems, yeah.
1: Reminds me of. I never read the book. There were a lot of classics that somehow I didn't end up having to read growing up and never had to read 1984. And a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to see what this was all about. And I went through it. And as you're telling that story, I'm hearing Big Brother in the TV and... Yeah,
0: separate podcast.
1: <laughs> Orwell was right about something. Exactly. All right. College. Where did you go to school?
0: Uh, I went to uh, Simon Fraser University. So it's in uh, Vancouver. And I studied uh, communication, which I shouldn't have because I can't spell and can't write. So all I wrote is papers. But I learned how to work the system. That's, I think, where I firstly got my twisted love of procedures and processes (laughs) because I love processes. Yeah.
1: This is the second time you've referenced working the system. I have a feeling this is a theme for Peter.
0: Exactly. Right. Yeah. Efficiencies, right. I'm all about, I love, I never understood it, but I love efficiencies and processes. But, yeah, so I went to school, did uh, communication. Like I enjoyed media and all that stuff. I think that's what kind of traveled. But it was not supposed to. Like I didn't, you know, I graduated. I got okay grades, but I uh, like I like writing. Like my dad's a writer. I, I enjoy writing, but it's not my strong suit. So I think that was a little bit of a struggle. And I was on the snowboarding team, so that was a lot of fun.
1: You had a snowboarding team.
0: Yeah, we had. Yeah, we had the NCW snowboarding team back then. Yeah, so it was pretty good. Wow.
1: What year, what time frame would that have been?
0: I took like six years to do uni, so I took my time. Uh, so graduated high school, 93. So it was 94 to like 94, like to
1: 2000. Okay. Wow. I'm surprised that they had a snowboarding team at that point. Like snowboarding was just kind of, you know, early, mid nineties. That was like the the infancy of it. And by the mid nineties, they've already got an actual team.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I started riding, really riding in 1990. You were Early,
1: early on that.
0: Early adopters. Yeah, we were even back in Ottawa. I mean, this was when I was 15. I think it was uh, Montreal. Blah. You had to have a license to ride a snowboard on the mountain. (laughs) Wow. Because they're like, this is a dangerous sport. We're going to, you're not allowed to be here. So
1: (laughs) we're incredibly fortunate. We typically get to go skiing once a year. um, And I feel like snowboarding has actually started to decrease in popularity, at least the places that we've been. Used to be, I'd see way more snowboarders than I do now. Are you seeing that up in in Vancouver?
0: Yeah, I think what happened, like I used to, I grew up on skis, went to snowboard and was an active skier and snowboard half and half, then really just dove into snowboarding just because the gear and I think the comfort of the boots was so good. But now I think in the last like five years, the skis just got wider and lighter. The boots are better. So I think it's coming back to it right they're shorter they're different like they're almost a, a version you know 2.0 uh, so definitely see that. I tried to get back into skiing a couple of years ago but I'm like yeah no I love the board I right? just got yeah
1: I actually switched probably two years ago from from boarding to skiing oh yeah and maybe the ski boots have gotten better but the rental ski boots definitely have not. I <laughs> hate walking in ski boots snowboard boots all day long. Everything's good. Yeah, exactly. All right. Six years to do college. You get out with communications degree. You mentioned that wasn't what you should have done. Looking back, what do you think would have been a better study path? Like from a business or a personal perspective? Yes.
0: Yes. Both (laughs) Uh, from a business. Yeah. Finance. Like that's a really good business model. Money. (laughs) Personally, I, I don't know. I always loved acting and creative in theater, which I have never really done, but I was, that's, you know, I would have probably kind of gone down that. I think the creativity is I've found creativity in business, but it hasn't necessarily been the right thing to do at the right time. Now it's helping out. Right. But at the beginning, it's, you know, you know, how it is like you could be creative, but business is sometimes really not. (laughs) It's a systematic process.
1: Do you think that's from your parents? You mentioned that they were both actors.
0: Yeah, for sure. Just being naturally just creative. I have a lot of creative juices, which I think are sometimes I don't feed them as much as I should. So that's kind of the lacking that's kind of missing, but everything happens for a reason. That's why I live by. So when I look back at why it happened, I know exactly why, you know, why things happened the way it happened.
1: Outside of your business, do you have a creative outlet today? Do you, do you paint? Do you do photography? Do you draw? Do you anything like that?
0: I love bowling. I want a bowling league. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't know how creative that is, but, you know, hurling a 15 pound ball at pins feels really good. So, that's a good one. Obviously, skiing, creative wise, get back a little bit back into the guitar. That's kind of my one of my goals for the next little while to really dig into something. But I think one of those things I need to, I love the outdoors. I love working out, mix the kids in, mix the businesses, and mix seven and a half hours of sleep. And all of a sudden, time just.
1: It's a full day. It's a full day. (laughs) Yeah. Walk me through. Right after you got out of school, what did you do?
0: Yeah, it was interesting. I worked like in as a marketing minion for this uh, little tech startup company and that kind of, uh, I was like, wow, this desk stuff sucks. Nine to five kind of really sucks. It wasn't, I was not really meant to do that. I don't think I was a really good employee at all. To be quite honest, and then I did another one. I worked for Corporate Express, which was Staples. Actually, they bought Staples and did a little bit of e-commerce stuff. And that's when I noticed too. There was like this was back that this was back in two thousand and two. They were like they had this online shopping portal, and I was like, okay, let's automate it. Let's get all the sales reps to be able to use it and do it. And all of a sudden, I worked myself out of a job. And then I'm like, hey, maybe I'll try sales, and I really didn't like that. And then I actually ended up breaking my back to snowboarding on a really small, stupid jump. So after that, I'm like, I'm not going back. And I ended up, I was always like into computers, just kind of stuff. So I'm like, maybe I'll just help fix computers. So that was kind of my first in 2002, I think was my first thing. I ended up being Pete, the computer
1: guy. This is on your own. You're not working for like Geek Squad or, or somebody else.
0: No. Yeah. This is on my own. I think my first computer I took to fix, you know, I think I charged like 50 bucks and it took me 20 hours and right. The next one takes a 10 and so forth that kept going for a while. And then I moved to kind of Kelowna from Vancouver and started that here. And it was a good little kind of business, a little super small, but uh, that was kind of my first taste of kind of entrepreneurship.
1: I'm sorry. You said Kelowna, that's where you live now.
0: Yeah. So Kelowna, BC, it's about four hours East, uh, drive, uh, of Vancouver, Canada, which in, you know, Canadian terms, four hours is like, you know, next block.
1: It's really small. <laughs> So That's like Texas.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: All right. Pete, the computer guy. Was that actually the name of your business?
0: That was the name. That was it. Pete, the computer guy. Yeah.
1: Registered, incorporated. That's on the tax ID.
0: Yeah, that was it. I even got to the point where I had so many friends ask me to help fix their computers. I used to wear a shirt to, well, I did two things when I used to go to parties. One, I had a USB stick with me. Cause I'm like, yeah, let me fix it Wow, <laughs> while I'm drinking beer. And then the other one, I got a t-shirt that says, no, I will not fix a computer. <laughs> so I started wearing that.
1: <laughs> There's a bumper sticker that I love. I haven't seen it in a while, but it says, yes, this is my truck. No, I will not help you move. I think that's the equivalent uh, for your, your, uh.
0: Exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah.
1: You don't strike me as the computer nerd kind of guy. You definitely don't strike me as the guy that carries a USB stick in his pocket to parties. Has Pete undergone some metamorphosis or what?
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. So I think uh, I never honestly, like Scott, I never started businesses from, hey, I'm going to grow something to make money and bring value. I think that's like, if you know you look at it, go backwards, like, oh, what would I change? It's like, yeah, no, Pete, you, you got to understand that business is about value. It's not about trying to help somebody as much as you can. It's about like, hey, Mr. Customer, what do you want? What are you going to pay for? And what problem you solve? And I think, I'm trying to teach that to my kids right now. I'm like, hey, look, money's important. You value your time. This is how it works. This is how the world works, right? It's not what they teach you in school. This is reality. <laughs> I had always a thirst to help people. And I think subconsciously it was also to help myself. But when I was Pete, the computer guy, I was like, I did this stuff and I was never thinking about like, where can you take it? How can you scale it? Like geek squad or not. It was like, uh, with back then with my ex, we opened up uh, a computer training center. Cause I, when I went to people's houses there, I was like, I felt guilty just sitting there and waiting for updates. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like updating. And they're like, what's that too? And I'm like, well, what do you want to know? So I just started asking questions. I'm like, what do you want to know? And they're like this and this and this. And everybody was asking me the same thing. And like, what, why aren't these people? And back then this was like 2004, you know, every single computer, it was a manual, right? It was like 150 pages long. It was like, there's no YouTube, no nothing back there. So I open up like, Hey, let's open up right click computer training. I ended up training about 1700 people over a two year period and logged about four and a half thousand hours of training. It was, you know, basic computers and Excel and how to online bank. And I just dumbed it down. But a lot of heart, a lot of pain, just really bad business model. <laughs> I, yeah.
1: I'm thinking like Windows XP.
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we were Windows XP, Windows Vista. I had this like, my dad's an architect, so we designed a classroom. It was like a semicircle and had six people and they had a screen in front of them. And then I had a screen in front of me so I could see what they were doing. And so I could teach simultaneously six people on an individual basis. And like, it was good, you know, maybe if we were in a a bigger city would have done, but it was a struggle. Like it didn't, it paid a little bit, but it didn't really make any money. I lost a whole bunch of money. Like it was a good kind of good learning experience, uh, you know, through that perspective. But it was just a lot of heart. And that actually transitioned to, I'm really tired. How do I automate this? That's the automation piece. And I created Hustream, which was an interactive video company. And then Hustream was because I'm like, hey, people are always making these mistakes. How do I... So I created all these tons of videos and and I put them into like a simulator environment. and But of course, it never went anywhere because it's way too early. But I had a mentor at that time who came in and said, what is this? I literally created a interactive video platform where you could upload videos and you could click on different things and it would lead to like choose your own adventure story. And this was in 2004, 2005. And so Hustream was created... And that was kind of my first crack of like, okay, this was a little bit bigger, right? And we got some people together, and but um, it kind of always transitioned to kind of like, hey, what problem? I was never really looking at what problem can I solve. It's like, how can I help somebody better, <laughs> right? And how can I help people more? But I never really understood what problem am I solving. That's kind of the thing you learn
1: with Pete the Computer Guy. You start off literally doing house calls, is what it sounds like. Sounds like is that right? And through that, you developed this idea that people need to learn. And did you abandon the break-fix kind of stuff at that point?
0: Yeah, because we went full tilt on to um, the computer training. So all the customers that I had initially became the first customers on on it. And then I created a partnership with somebody else who fixed the computer so we could still handle that part. But it was all full tilt on the computer training part.
1: Did you keep a, a customer list of all those houses that you have been to, to to fix things and send them like direct mail, or were you doing email? Like, how did you how did you find those customers for training?
0: Well, it's a great question. I think after first of all, we did you know the typical failures radio didn't work, uh, but then what worked was an editorial. So we had a paper write an article of us, and then we put like a free class in it, and that brought all these people. So that was the only way. Every month we did took a half a page ad in the local newspaper. And put a free class in there. And I, I ran the free class. And then at the end of the class, I said, Hey, here's some packages. And I learned the super hard lesson as an entrepreneur, how to sell with fear of loss. It sucked. But you're like, if I don't sell these people, I don't pay my mortgage. It sucks, right? You you know, this like that's what they don't tell you in entrepreneurial school. You hit those really dark moments, you got two options, either you die or you sell. So I learned how to sell these packages. It was like, hey, we got a techie pack and this package and you know, here's the value of it. And then we sold it and then create enough revenue for that month and deliver the packages and just did it again and again. Yeah. But it wasn't not enough volume. There's not enough people in the town. It was too small and it just didn't, you know, and we never hit like business. I never took it from a business perspective or increase, you know, in, uh, increase the, the cost of it because my, my thing was, I was like, I just wanted to help people as much as I could, right. Keep the cost low and, and do it. And that's still a mentality actually I carry today. Which is ironically helping now, but that was kind of the, lots of heart. I mean, lots of really good stories that I have from people saying, man, thank you so much. I can communicate with my kids. I saw my pictures, you know, of the grandkids, like that stuff. You know, you remember every time I go back and go, hey, we lost all this money. But I'm like, no, I changed 1,700 people's lives. That's the way you got to look at it.
1: Man, that's great perspective. One of our guests um, was on several months ago, Clayton Flurry owns a, a, a meat market in the town that I live in. And one of the things that he talked about that that just really motivated him was he wants to be that place and is that place where a family comes in after their kids flag football game and they're getting an IC and he's he's having conversations about, you know, how'd the game go? How'd you play? And and building those relationships and being, you know, being a place that's kind of a, a center in the community. And it sounds like your your takeaway was kind of similar.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's where you know, if you look at it, I mean, I, I forget the last statistics, like, especially in BC, like you got 90, I don't know, 90 plus percent of all those businesses are those, right? Like that's the backbone of like the Western societies, these small businesses. It's not the, you know, not the Googles or the Facebooks. Those are the fortune 500. <laughs> that's why they call it that, right? And I think it's the backbone. So definitely there was, you know, I remember for years, even after we shut it down, people remembered right click and, you know, I got... I got little stories and newspapers. And so I often come back to that now because it's so easy, as you know, as an entrepreneur to go, man, that sucked. I failed here. I lost this. I screwed up here versus like what actually happened? What worked, you know, and how much of an impact
1: did you make? Right? So right. Click was the training company. Pete, the computer guy was the break fix. You wind that down. Right. Click was the training. What was the demographic of your typical customer?
0: Oh, baby boomers.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Baby boomers. It's a really hard business model to teach them, but I have patience of Job. So that's like, um, yeah, it was just baby boomers. It was an older generation, just scared of computers, right? That's kind of where it was.
1: You just used the word and it's a word that when it comes up, I always want to hone in on. You talked about patience. Patience. Do you consider yourself a patient person?
0: Yes. To a fault sometimes, not for myself, but if I'm helping somebody, if I'm training somebody, if you're, you're hiring a team member, you're giving for sure. Yeah. A hundred percent.
1: Is that learned or is that something that's just innate in you?
0: I think I've always had it because I think from immigration or that stuff, you just become an actual observer, right? Your heightened sense of observer is like, are you going to be my friend? Are you going to, you know, eat me? So, (laughs) you kind of learn to be patient in every single relationship I think I've ever had. I valued even if it's not good for me. You kind of, yeah. So, I think that's just a natural of who. And now I'm really trying to balance it out. You know, when can you, you know, how much patience can you give and what's a good amount and to focus it. So, I think it's a good thing.
1: Right click lasted a couple of years, about two years.
0: Yeah. Went hard for about two and a half years.
1: Yeah and was the ultimate reason that you shut that down that just the financial aspect of it wasn't going to make
0: yeah no exactly i remember the accountants telling me like hey man this is not making money i'm like oh i'm not hearing that <laughs> right the, the the classic not listening to that uh but then yeah it was just not making money not at all
1: going back to that patience piece it sounds like people outside were speaking into the business and speaking into to you and saying hey this isn't working you need to do something else was there that patience aspect of, of you. That's like, no, we just need to keep going. We need to give it a little bit longer. We need to give it a little bit longer. It's going to turn. Yeah. A hundred percent.
0: Yeah. I think that that's the, you know, entrepreneurial rose colored glasses that often need to be ripped off later in life.
1: <laughs> and what was the final moment, the straw that broke the camel's back or whatever you want to call it? What was that final moment where you said, okay, yep, yeah, this is it. Did you have like a lease that ended and you're like, okay, this will be the last day or?
0: Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. I think what we ended up, I was like, I was just like, I I ended up doing this whole demo thing online and we had a website and then it could, the interactivity. And then it was like, Hey, we got to find, I had that mentor come in. It's like, wow, this can be used for business. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, cool. And then it just happened. I'm like, okay, well, we know how to shoot videos. I was shooting a lot of videos back then just for it. And I never did anything with it. I'm more of a creator, right? Like I'm a process creator and et cetera. So sometimes that gets into the entrepreneurial mindset versus like to look at all the bits and pieces of a business from a health perspective. Uh, and I think uh, it was like I picked up a project with a local university. That was like my first one. Like, hey, we have this interactive thing. And it was like a recruiting thing. And it was like, all of a sudden, you know, we got, I made five times more revenue than I did an entire month from that one project. And I think that just kind of led to that. And I'm like, um, okay, let's just, you know, let's just do these projects that we did these. And they were like just bigger video productions. They were interactive and it was, it was way more lucrative from a revenue perspective. I think I even had a developer back on, uh, back on staff back then. And that kind of made the transition. So after we started you know, focusing on that, it was just natural. I'm like, hey, we're going to let these packages go. And hindsight 2020 it probably could have sold something or to somebody because it had a good base. It had some form of revenue, but it was just like, no, off to the next adventure.
1: <laughs> that's interesting. It was out of a new passion. Mm, yes. That caused you to shudder the other.
0: Exactly. I think that's a great way to look at it.
1: Yeah. And when you talk about doing video production, Are you actually behind the camera? Are you editing and splicing stuff together? Are you mastering audio and creating credits? Like, help me understand more tangibly, like, what did that look like for you?
0: Yeah. So, I was kind of like the interactive architect. So, if you look at interactive video back then, you basically look like, you know, let's say you have 10 minutes of footage and you divide it back then. This is, I kind of always a little bit ahead of my time. I had bite sized pieces of information right? So I knew engagement times was the number one thing back then. So when we had a project, we're like, okay, hey, we have these 20 video clips. They're like 21 minute video clips. And then I ended up hooking up, you know, with a proper videographer who could also do the editing. I didn't do much. Like I know how to edit a little bit, but I was never really a pro at it. So, but my job was to kind of script and define the structure and, you know, and produce it uh, with the customer. And then to say, hey, why we're doing it and who the kind of the personas and what they want to give them that engagement part online. And then we had uh, would hire subcontractors and ultimately we had a full team on staff to be able to produce them and edit them.
1: I was having this conversation with somebody, I've actually had it multiple times in recent months. Thinking about this podcast, for example, today there are tons and tons of tools that are very affordable, very easy to use. It's very approachable. There's all kinds of physical equipment that you can get that you can go to Best Buy, Target, Walmart, Amazon will have it the next day. And a lot of it is actually very reasonably priced, very affordable. And there's also tons of training available online to help you do these things better. I guess where I'm going with that is it is so much easier today for somebody to be a content creator and i recognize that the content that you were creating was a little bit different than what we think of today when we talk about a content creator but i mean conceptually there's really not that much difference do you feel like there has been a major shift in what's available to people today or do you look back and go eh, it's the same stuff just different companies doing it
0: i think for sure the tools have gotten simpler I think, you know, the distribution has gotten simpler. The just generally if you're looking from a video perspective, the the pipe of the internet is much more, you know, used to as we're doing video now across the globe. I think where I always looked at video, I never looked at video as a piece of content. I always looked at video as a communication medium. And I think that's where I think there's still people I think in the business world, they're still not looking at video as a communication stream, they're still looking at as individual assets versus like if you look at my kids, they're not thinking that video is a piece of content, right? They're like, well, it's it's a video. (laughs) Like I'm snapping you. Like, you know, here's what it is. So I think that's the big change. And I think there's still a continuation that's going to happen. I think a lot of, especially businesses, are going to still be waking up of how much video content they need to create. Like it's not one or two; it's like three to five a day, <laughs> right? And and I think that's still going to be the next one. I think ultimately it is a, it's an attention game; it's an attention society. So I think the fundamentals for sure. I think you know AI is going to rapidly help with that too, but I think you're still going to have to create the content, right, and be the person on the screen or share that value. So I think fundamentally it hasn't really changed, but some of the, for sure, tools or the understanding, yeah. But also I think sometimes it can work against you because sometimes I'm like, I'm a video guy and I go on YouTube and I'm like, what are the newest cameras? I'm like, I just spent three hours and I'm lost. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can never keep up with it because no. you know tomorrow somebody will have something new.
0: Exactly, yeah. I've been shooting all, most of my stuff is on the phones for years now. I have the DSLRs, I have the big things and, but those are, I have also a uh, tech museum. So most of them end up there.
1: I'm a techie. I'm a gadget nerd. And yeah, there's a there's a graveyard uh, somewhere in my house. Actually, there's probably a couple of them. Amazing. Yeah. Let's pause for just a second on the work front. You've mentioned your kids a couple of times. Where in your business journey did you get married and start having a family?
0: Yeah. So in 2001, kind of the first business started and yeah, I got married in 2022. And then We had kids about, uh, yeah, three years after that, Abby came. So it was right in the thick of things. And I think both her and I worked on the businesses, which wasn't necessarily smart. You know, at that time, we didn't know, like we were kind of all in. But ever since then, there's been plenty of times where I wanted to throw in the towel and go get a job. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) I think that's a normal thing. But uh, that's been the journey.
1: How did having kids change how you looked at the business or did it change how you looked at the business or being the guy without the steady paycheck?
0: Yeah, I think it should have. It didn't.
1: Why do you say that? Why do you say it should have?
0: It should have, you know, I, for sure. That's one of the things is, um, I, what I could or should have done differently is, uh, looking at things from a realistic perspective of being able to, you know, look, forward and see, Hey, is this a financial, you know, is there stability in this? Is there something uh, we should plan for? If you got kids coming in, I think part of actually my, you know, the emigration part was living in a state of fear of loss. You're in a complete state of fight or flight mode. So it wasn't until literally, I would say probably almost a year ago that I learned how to look forward to one or two years or plan one or three years ahead of time. I was very ninety days focused, and I think so. Having kids was like, yep, yeah, no, we're just having kids. Let's let's do it. They're not going to affect it, and let's in. You're in. I think it was great because a lot of times you you work at home. I've, I've been working remotely at home even for like almost a decade, so that's always been good. That I've been there. I didn't do much traveling, so that was a good thing. Uh, but financially, for sure, there was definitely hardship in that side, but. I think, you know, me and my ex, we always had a really good idea of, or good, that kids just don't slow down your life, right? They're part of it. You make them integrated and we had three of them. We even have one with special needs. So that kind of put everything, you know, so three is a lot of work. <laughs> so you just kind of do it, right? you like a little bit blur and do it.
1: I've got three myself and I, I agree. Three is a lot. Yes. You mentioned making the kids part of it. You know, they're part of the life. Were they involved in the business at all?
0: I think uh, there's a couple of times where the young kids you know, came into the business, but they weren't really, you know, I think once we got the kids a little bit older, Hustream was just a full-on B2B kind of a tech company. And so there was not really much that they, you know, could partake, you know, in that stuff. I think for sure they hung out by the office a bunch of times, but that's
1: probably the extent of it. Okay. All right. Back to Hustream. You were ahead of your time. Walk me through the the life of Hustream. It started with this project with the with the college and then one thing led to another and
0: yeah and it was just this interactive video i think it you know we were doing pretty good like you know at the height of it i think there's like 10 of us and i had some really good senior staff kind of around me but i you know you make the classic kind of mistakes when you first kind of get people together and and i think i talk about mistakes quite a bit because they're beautiful learning things and they're just that's what you got to do Uh, But it was completely way ahead of its time. Like It wasn't really solving a problem, but the stuff that we got was like, whoa, this is cool. Can we get one of those? But that's not solving a problem, right? And back then, I was like, look at these stats. I remember this one company we had. They were awesome. They were a great, great customer from our perspective, and they were a customer for years. And we did a bunch of projects for them with substantial ones. And I remember doing this lead generation interactive video. And I'm like, look, they were getting like nine and a half minutes of engagement time on a landing page. Okay. That's huge. Nine and a half minutes. And I'm like, and so this was, I don't know, this was eight, nine, 10 years ago. And I'm bringing the reports to these people. And they're like, oh, that's great. I'm like, you have no idea what that is. Right. Like, so I was always living having ADD. so always living in the mindset of short attention span. So I'm like, I'm looking at these numbers, I'm going, This is incredible. Right. People are engaging in this content that much. Again, if people don't understand it, don't see the value. That was so it was really like we try to scale. We were in a lot of universities. Um, that was a tough because they had really, you know, 12 to 24 month sales cycle. So it was just too early, which has been my problem most of my career. And I would say not until now. I'm like, okay, cool. This and this and this go ahead, Mr. Customer, what do you want? Okay. Let me give you that <laughs> instead of telling you where things are going. <laughs> right. So yeah, always, always early, always early. What have you learned
1: from that experience about market timing?
0: Oh, it's everything.
1: <laughs> it's everything
0: everything it's timing is everything i mean if you look at you know i remember hearing the great story of uh you know i mean slack look at slack there were irc chat there were like hundreds of them timing airbnb you know if the economy didn't crash would have not taken away so there's timing is everything because if you look at some businesses are just like taking off the messaging is right and it's all to do with timing and i think that's where like the business I'm in now, it's good. I think the timing is good. I got like good validation from, we just had the pivot like to in-house video, which was, I actually started in-house video eight years ago. It was basically about to provide like low cost video solutions on a monthly basis and helping people shoot videos on their smartphones. That was eight years ago, way too early. (laughs) So I'm almost doing the same thing now, (laughs) except obviously it's it's more advanced and it's different stuff, but it's all around timing. And I think when you look at a business going, it can be a brilliant idea. But if the timing is off, then it doesn't really matter because you're not going to get, you may get the early adopters, but crossing the chasm, you can't cross it. Right. Like, and I think that's the, the holy grail because that's why so many small businesses are small is because the biggest, I think the biggest challenge is the scaling. But if the timing is not there, it doesn't matter what you do, it's not going to happen. And it's nothing to do with how smart you are, or how team or how much money you have. It's just not going to happen. Right.
1: So I'd love to know. What you're thinking about today as your next business idea and let's get doc brown and a delorean and a flux capacitor and let's just send you like five or ten years into the future and i'm sure you'll be the next bill gates
0: 100 percent. yeah you got that i think that's a good question i mean to honestly do it is that i think in-house video is awesome where it's going i look at it now it's a great business. It has beautiful potential growth. It solves a real problem. I'm super passionate about it, which I actually haven't been in a long time. So I kind of got that rejuvenated. Kind of like, hey, this is cool. It's actually working. And but my passion lies, I think, is for sure helping people. I think um, my passion, if you look at, you know, what I've always been obsessed about is self growth and like just going through my own crappy journeys that I had to get through, and I learned a lot through it. So I'm like, man, I'd love to be able to use that stuff where. My passion is teaching. I love process. I love, you know, execution strategies. And I'm like, how do I apply that with what I really do? I think there's huge benefits in, you know, self-mental health and mental growth. And I think AI has a huge component to do that. I think there's going to be AI therapists everywhere in your pocket to help you transform your mindset, to teach you how to work out your mind, to teach you how to get through the things that you can Because we don't, we got mechanics, we got computer techs, we got, you know, data scientists, stats people. You have everybody to help you with everything. But then, still, the mental health from a perspective of understanding how the brain works and to do it is a huge thing to help people. So, yeah, I mean, I've used ChatGT before on a regular basis for my own therapist. That's pretty amazing. (laughs) Right. So, that's where I put my stuff in there.
1: You got some developers uh, working on an app wrapped uh, wrapped around that, and you know, let's sit on it for just a little bit, let the market get ready, and boom, that's Pete's next big idea.
0: That's it, and I think that's the passion. One is like, I don't care where that goes, you know, if you can help people, you hear that a lot, right? Like when you get to you follow, I follow a ton of entrepreneurs who've done a bazillion beautiful more things than I have, and when you get to it, I think you always kind of hear this common occurrence is like you're just trying to help the world be a little bit of a better place. Because at the end of the day, right? Like you hear that, like I don't have Ferraris and all that, but I've heard it from people going, yeah, cool, I have a Ferrari and it's nice to drive. And then you're like, okay, what's next? So that, you know, and I'm really, if I look at it, like what is really driving me to do what I do, to sacrifice what I sacrifice, to try to fix my own brain is like, man, I think at some point I got to help people. That's kind of it. So it's definitely at the age of 48, got me a new spunk and energy to be able to continue that but yeah i think artificial intelligence to help you uh, live a more you know i I don't like the words with happy because that's just one emotion but more content uh life is is going to be a massive component
1: you talked about helping people on the topic of people was hustream the first time that you actually employed other people
0: yeah, like full time for sure. Yeah, we had you know part time instructors at, at in house. Oh, sorry, in house at, in-house at uh, Right Click, but Houston was the first time where we had some NRC, we had government uh, grant funding. You know, we were bootstrapped. We were trying to raise some funds, but we never ended up doing it. But yeah, that's when we had a team and project managers and producers and obviously like shareholder structure. Yeah, all
1: right. You hire your first employee. You've been you've been self employed at this point for how long?
0: Probably like, yeah, six, six years, six, seven years. Yeah, man, time flies.
1: Walk me through the thought process. What was the point at which you realized I need more hands? I need to hire people.
0: Yeah, I think it was also just from my, you know, you always heard it's like, I was never, I think I never had the problem of controlling stuff. I had kind of like the opposite, like, oh, hey, you can help create, you know, let me empower you and let's, let's do it together. So I think, but it was like in video process, like I was an amateur, I was ne- definitely not a, not a pro. And we also had a, a full platform. So I, w- I was not a developer. So I worked with developers. So that was the key uh, component. And I think project manager, that was obviously when there was just too much work to manage. And I was never really good at taking things to hundred percent. I can get them, you know, start the idea, start the process, but not to finish it. And then also some senior people. So I was like, that was my first, I was like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm not the best CEO. Maybe I'm not it. I'm I'm a product guy. I'm actually at the core of who I am now. I'm a product guy. Like now I understand obviously the business perspective and what to do and how to drive it. But that's just from, you know, pure sheer of experience. But back then, you know, I even had a CEO and we had like advisors and different people to fit correctly into the puzzle of trying to bring uh, things together. So I think it was just like, hey, what don't I know? Where do I need help? And what am I good at? And what am I not good at? Right. And being able to, you know, bring those people together.
1: Hiring your first employee, I think is, is a really difficult thing for a lot of people to do. But you actually, as the fa- owner founder, you brought in a CEO to run the company that you owned. Yes. Man, walk me through that. I think that a lot of people, if for no other reason than pride would have a really hard time doing that. I think it, it takes a ton of self-awareness to say, I'm going to own it. I'm going to keep things going, but I'm going to get somebody else to actually sit in that chair.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I've always, you know, one, one thing I've always believed in core is still to this day is, you know, always hire smarter people than you are. Right. And always like put in people that, will naturally do things better or had more experience. So I think that's the key component where I really looked at was like, okay, this person has more experience. they they've had worked in a company and I realized I'm like, hey, I'm a product guy. I'm like, okay, I can, I can see the vision. I can create these things, but how are we supposed to run, you know, sales process or sales froze or financial modeling? I'm like, no. And I really don't had no no desire to do that. I should have learned it definitely, but it was not in it. So I never looked at that as a, a problem because I'm like, you know, I've always stood by it. We were definitely gunning for an exit, which never happened, but I was like, well, a smaller piece of a pie is better than no pieces of pie. Right, <laughs> So nothing happens. You're like, you're not going to get anywhere. And I think I learned that from, you know, other people and et cetera. You hear those stories. Cause like we always hear those massive, beautiful stories, but out of those stories, there's, you know, ten million four hundred ninety five thousand that are, don't work that are regular stories, but they still have all the same patterns, right. Of, of, you know, bringing people together and, and doing it. And it was good. Like we won, we won a bunch of awards, you know, we made, we made some headlines, et cetera, but it just never got anywhere.
1: You ran Hustream, you had Hustream for about five years. Does that sound right? Yeah. And same as what I asked earlier about right click, what was the moment that it was, okay, this isn't gonna work? Or was it a whole new passion, just like the the creation of Hustream?
0: I think it was just reality was sitting in, you know, you're burning money. We took personally, I took on a bunch of debt. Some of the executive staff weren't really getting paid that much they were burning their own you know savings i didn't know how to properly lead i think you know when we were quite small and i think that's where like my not my mistake but when you know like to run a small innovative startup it's like you had to have done it Right, it's you can't come from a larger organization, you know, doing 20, 30 million in revenue, and then come into a startup and know, hey, I know the big stuff. No, it's a completely different ball game. And I didn't know that. Right, I didn't know, you know, the scrappiness of it and and what it was. So, not, no offense to the team, the existing team there. It's just like it was just the writing on the wall. Like, oh, these contracts are taking forever. You know, we're not making enough revenue. It's the classic things and like, okay, what are you going to do? And then people kind of started to leave in and I had to start laying people off. And, you know, it's those, those are the dark, dark times of entrepreneurship, right? That nobody talks about. <laughs> that was like, oh crap, this, you know, the writing is on the wall and you're leveraged and yeah, what are we going to do now? Right?
1: Not to be flipping about it, but kind of seems like it died a slow death. Yeah, for sure. How long was the downward trajectory? Demise, (laughs) the downward, yeah.
0: I think it's about a year probably. Yeah, right. Like you, because we had pretty long sales cycles and they just, they weren't just coming in. And I mean, there's definitely stuff we could have done, like going back. I know exactly where we were taking the company, but that's, (laughs) you know that now, right? You don't know that beforehand.
1: Hindsight's 2020. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. You said something a second ago, you, you talked about you had taken on debt and that senior folks in the company were eating into their own savings and and not taking much of a paycheck was kind of my interpretation of that. How did you motivate the people to stay? Because for a lot of people, if I'm not getting paid, I'm, I'm out of here. But somehow you managed to keep them on for some amount of time, making significant sacrifices themselves.
0: Yeah, I think I was and i'm trying to get that back in my life right now an optimist at heart (laughs) so you know you want to have that optimism you want to have that vision and i had always this passion and vision And okay we can do this and we can do that and we can do this and we can do that and so i think that also allowed me to close deals that i probably shouldn't have like, I remember closing some six-figure contract over a phone, just being like, Yeah, this is great. This is what you need to do. And they're like, Okay. I'm like, That shouldn't have really worked. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> you know, that was not a sustainable, predictable sales model. So I think a lot of time, like, my passion and my energy kind of brought the wrong filter to reality. And I think that just happened, you know, to the people around me and all that stuff until kind of reality or the numbers, like, Yeah, these numbers suck. Right. So
1: in tech sales, Salespeople are somewhat notorious for saying yes to whatever the customer asks. Of course, it can do that. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) The story you just told about that six figure deal you landed with a little bit of charm was that one of those, yeah, sure, it can do it. And you're going back to your developers and like, hey, guys, I need you to work. uh, I need you to work the weekend to incorporate this. Or was it a different?
0: No, it was kind of a different like it was just like we were able to sell this newness and the vision of this whole interactive technology that kind of nobody else had. And it was so unique that people were buying it, but they were buying it from a sense of, you know, when there's like, you know, I had had kind of the privilege of working with some big companies like Microsoft and IBM and Lenovo's and the big stickers where take a budget to play to just try things and that's not a reality of where you're so, you know you're buying something to solve something and I think that's where also the my enthusiasm back to your original question is I was able to keep these people and customers and everything around was from that creativity and that enthusiasm and like yeah we're closing these deals with these big companies I'm like yeah but they're in reality they're they're just testing things out. Right, They're not like, you're not really solving a problem, right? It's not, it's not going to be like, you're not going to, it's really hard to find other. So I think that was a little bit of a detriment to the whole, you know, to the whole thing where I think if you're early, you got a super innovative, super cool product and people want it, it's not necessarily going to help you cross the chasm or that you're solving a problem, right? And I think that's, that's where I always learn now is entrepreneurs, like what problem are you solving? And is it big enough? (laughs) Right.
1: What was it like? shutting down the business? What was that like emotionally? What was that like in terms of like the logistics and and the things that you had to do? Did you have to refund money to, to customers? Was this a subscription model and people had prepaid and now, you know, the service is shutting down? What was that time like?
0: Yeah, it sucked all of it, <laughs> right? I mean, everything sucks in that. You let, you know, I think the hardest part is letting people go. I think that i hurt the most. Right. When, you know, you got, they got families and even though they get, you know, some subsidies from the government, it still sucks. And I've had to do that, unfortunately, more than, more than I like. Now it's obviously, it's part of that, you know, part of the journey that just happens. But the customers were fine because they were one-off projects. Like they had some, you know, we had, we kept the technology running. They had like a 12 month contract that they sometimes paid on it. So we kept that going. So we never really, you know, we never really left customers in it. Uh, and if they were kind of upset, we said, Hey, here's all your video assets. And we even, you know, partner up with different companies that were doing the same kind of thing. Say, look, you can use these guys. So I always, always take care of my customers. I've always taken care of customers, even if, um, I got to give them stuff away for free to help them out. Cause you don't want to burn any bridges and you don't want to do that. And that's also what brought me back here. Cause some of the customers I've had, I've known for a decade and I'd phone them up and I'm like, Hey, I got this crazy idea. They're like, sure, let's do it. <laughs> right. So we always took an. That, I think, you know, financial burden, for sure, that sucked. Uh, in fact, I still might be paying for some of that stuff. <laughs> if you're going to look at it, I'm sure it's in there somewhere on the books. But uh, yeah, no, that that sucks. It doesn't matter how you look at it. It's just, and then the the thing is, once you make the decision, like, you got to make the decision. There's no going back. There's no wavering. So I think once you make the call, you're like, oh, and, you know, it's going to, the conversation suck and everything, you know, but I think that's, I don't know. There's no other way to learn. Like you don't find that in business school, you know, shutting down a company, letting people go, letting the dream go. Yeah, you can't teach that in books. That you got to, unfortunately, you know, we, I've always heard that too. Scott, I don't know if you've heard that is like, you know, most people, entrepreneurs succeed after three failures, right? Like you got, you got to, you got to burn (laughs) and die three times. I'm like, I'm right on it and I can see it. Like I'm right on the money. I'm like, I can 100% tell you why. It just makes perfect sense because now you're like, okay, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. Okay. If I do this, right? you just, you just know. So that's an interesting journey.
1: I was going to lead into this next kind of portion of the conversation with you, you seem like a glutton for punishment, but what you just <laughs> yeah. said, what you just said, no, I think that was incredibly valuable. You took what you had learned and you had a new vision for something else and you were undeterred I mean, I think a lot of people would have gone and, and got a, a regular steady paycheck after, after this, but you said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take what I've learned and I'm going to go do this next thing. Walk us through what in-house video was and I guess kind of how it may have gotten birthed out of Hustream.
0: Yeah, I think it got birthed out of uh, one financial necessity because I was carrying back then quite a bit of debt load. And then when I looked at the debt load of what I had to get paid ever paycheck, and I'm looking at what's left over, I'm like, this ain't gonna work, which is a beautiful
1: entrepreneurship motivator. That's a good way of looking at it because I think a lot of people would look at that and they'd be paralyzed.
0: Oh, I definitely was paralyzed, but do you I think the that is the like I think I realized and I, I do a lot of journaling and I write that quite often. I was like, I'm celebrating not giving up. And I'm 48. And I'm still not giving up. And I think that's that's the whole point. Like, my father's 88, okay? That man, he's stressed out most of the time, loves his wine, but that guy will get on a boat, he'll camp on his own, he still skis uh, black diamonds, he's always fixing something, but he's never giving up. But the dude's 88, you know, 90% of his friends are gone under the ground. I see so many people that are in their 70s are, are nothing. This guy will, he just bought a red Tesla last year. <laughs> Right, like, so I think that's part of that, you know, is just not giving up. So when when I was like, stream, everything disappeared. I'm like, crap, and I'm like, okay, hey, what do I know? I know video. Okay, uh, I know how to create video quite well, and let's use smartphones because I, that's the future of using smartphones. Because back then it's like, even now, you know, it's like, hey, you want to show somebody up and film some videos and have a video director or whatever? It's like twenty grand. I'm like, for twenty grand, I can create thirty videos right so that I saw where that was coming I saw where the smartphones were going so that was kind of an innovation and I knew video and then I'm like okay what do I need I need monthly predictable revenue I'm like perfect so let's do these monthly models again it was a little bit that was like service as a software right so which is now you have that right like a service as a software model so that's coming into fruition kind of now so I did that yeah that was like almost 10 years ago wow that's been that long um so that was kind of It was really out of necessity. And then it's like the skill set that I had, you know, I knew kind of editors or I could, I knew how that model worked. And so I just kind of kept going in the, in the video base, I think out of pure necessity from a financial model perspective.
1: All right. Walk us through what in-house video does.
0: This version or last version? This version now? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's start with the first.
0: Yeah. The first version was we were basically going, hey, listen, how do we you know, bring more video content to companies uh, and make it cheaper and better and faster? And that was by utilizing you know, smartphones. And then we would do the editing for them. And then we even got to the point where we tried to training companies to do in-house video on their own, right? Because I always loved to train and empower people. That was always kind of my passion inside me was to help people make better. And again, it was just like we had some early adopters, but again, it was just a little bit you know, back then people were like, "We're not shooting with a smartphone. We're not using B-roll. We need professional videos." And I'm like looking at YouTubers. I'm like, "No, oh, no, you don't. You're gonna get your ass kicked." I'm like, "Why would you spend twenty grand on a video? Spend a thousand bucks and give the nineteen grand to YouTube? Like, that's smart." <laughs> but again, now people get it. Now people understand it. So back then they still. I remember I was at a Microsoft conference once shooting. This was years ago. I was shooting everything on an iPad. <laughs> While all these like video production crews around me, I'm like, yeah, I'm shooting on an iPad. Like, you know, and is it, are you going to get more views than me? No. So, you know, again, that kind of philosophy, that kind of kept going and, you know, kept going through, it was a pretty good little system. I did a lot of stuff, a lot of work with Microsoft. We did a lot of training. I trained a lot of companies how to do internal stuff. And then now I think we're in a really cool pivot. Where we finally kind of achieved the goal where we are now is to really scale it and to provide unlimited editing and unlimited kind of videos for companies on a low monthly fee. Because I worked really hard in the last couple of years to set up a model. I got a full remote team in Pakistan and virtually, and it's a process game. And it's a beautiful thing to be able to do things remotely now in the world. And we're executing on the latest tools and latest AI stuff. And that's kind of where my brain and geek goes. So now I'm like, man, I'm really good at this stuff. (laughs) You know, after 15 years, you're like, this is my superpower and I'm going to kick some butt. So that's the kind of like, now it's really kind of like cool. So, you know, 2024 is all about scaling and growing. And that's been going on for like 15 years. So I think now after all those ups and downs, you're like, cool, I know what I need to do you know, I made my last decisions, not but hey, Peter, this is a good idea, but competitive analysis, what are they doing? And does it work from a financial perspective? Does it work from a KPI perspective? Oh, check, check, check. Let's go. (laughs) You know, and that stuff, you just, the only way to learn it (laughs) is going through all the things in the back end.
1: Earlier, we talked about your college education and you kind of threw out, you know, maybe finance would have been a good place to start. Had you gone that route? Do you think that you would not have had some of the the challenges that you had earlier on. Yeah, that's a good question. I think you
0: know if I you know tell entrepreneurs now it's like where would you go? I think you know first of all I said pick an industry you like and go get a job because you're gonna learn the logos. Are they gonna learn the lingo? Is you're gonna learn the process? You're gonna learn the problems. And then if you want to do something, do it on your own. I think that's and I've seen that a lot of successful companies where people have gone that route right? When you have the relationship and et cetera, you know, I think now, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's ever going to be me, but you know, I've never, again, you can start a business saying, Hey, I'm going to start a business to make money. Well, then you're starting very simple businesses. (laughs) You know, you, a simple business makes money, right? Like, you know, you're going to lease vehicles (laughs) or I don't know what's the great business I keep looking at is the rental lockers for all your stuff. That's a phenomenal business, right? I mean, here get a bunch of lockers, get a bunch of land, put it up, and let it's full all the time. (laughs) That's a good business. It's not innovation, but it's a really good business. And I've often looked at that. I'm like, am I? You know, should I start thinking like that? Sure. I now I do a little bit for sure because obviously you need the financial stuff about it. But I think I'm always going to innovate. I can't. It's not me. It's not who I am. So I think going backwards, it's kind of hard. You know, what would you say to go backwards? But it'd be definitely a different kind of life and. I think it would be like my dad always says, like, you got to work on your own. You can't trust anybody. That was my business training. And you kind of like, okay, work on your own. Don't trust anybody. That's not the right way you want to do it. Right. I'm trying to teach my kids, I'm like, look, you look at the value. What problem are you solving? Right. So my youngest comes out. It's like, dude, I got this idea. I'm like, cool. Okay. What problem are you solving? "Uh, Nothing. It's like, there you go. It's not going to work. Right. Or you do, if you want to do something passionate, well, that's a passion project. Look at that. Right. There's a ways to, even my oldest daughter right now, You know, her mom's a realtor and she's phenomenal at understanding, you know, she's 18 and her understanding of contracts and clauses. And I think she still holds the record in her middle school for the highest sales, right? Because we started teaching our kids going, hey, here's a profit, you know, analysis. Here's how to do it. Are you going to make, is it worth your time? Right. And I think those are the lessons that I never got taught. So if I went back, it's like, okay, what am I trying to do? Am I trying to be passionate and creator or am I trying to be a business person am i trying to create you know value and make money and i think those are very two different things and you hear that like don't start a business to make money (laughs) like you know it's a little bit of a and you're like no that doesn't make any sense like yes it does today's a canadian holiday nobody's working i had six meetings and i'm doing this (laughs) right? like i don't think about holidays anymore right like that doesn't you know it's uh it's different things so i don't know if that really answered your question but i think it's like you know, the journey that life takes you for, you have to embrace it because you kind of don't have a choice, right?
1: Until you start making your own choices. Yeah. It's a good way to look at it. Mm -hmm. As far as your team goes today, you've got an offshore group in Pakistan. Yeah. Talk to me about setting up shop on another continent. Yeah. In Pakistan. Yeah. Why Pakistan? Like, how did that come about?
0: So it was uh, a pure economical perspective of one to seventh ratio of where we needed to produce content and give the services to our customers at a reduced rate than they can do it internally. Full, full stop that's the business model from that perspective. So you need to support, you need to edit videos and support it because video is really intensive in terms of tasks. And you have to do that cheaper than they can do it internally. Otherwise, the business doesn't work. So you have to look somewhere else. I ended up being in Pakistan. I've used Upwork forever, found great people, designers. And I happened to find somebody there through somebody. And it was it was in Pakistan. It was great. And they're still learning the culture and still learning the people. And then... I learned the women are amazing. My entire team is all women. They're phenomenal. They're brilliant. They're highly educated. They work incredibly hard. They're so gifted, which I think sometimes Western people now take for granted, you know, how like what work is. And that's also that you learn when you're a business owner. You're like, no, like these are people you need them to work. You can be a nice guy, but you're not like I'm not. I have no problem letting people go anymore. <laughs> That's like, you can't learn that. You to look at it from perspective. But I knew other comp- companies were doing it, successful ones. So I saw the business model from that perspective. And then I said, okay, can we, can we make it work? The technology's there. The Asana's there. The conferences are there. You know, the internet pipe is there. I just happen to have also a great partnership with called, um, which is uh, Red Films. It's, uh, it's an editing house. And I know the owner. So him and I have been working together and we created this partnership. Just out of just symbiotic relationship, and it just worked out. Everything's done over Zoom, right? Or Google Meet, or I've actually never met them yet. I look forward to it and flying there once, but I've never met them. We talk every day. We have our KPIs, we're growing. Our customers are really happy because we can prove point from the data perspective. Like it's all data. It's like, here's the value. And it just happened. And to the point where I'm like super ominous with my customers, like, here's what we pay the team, here's what I get paid, here's our business model. If you can do it better than I can, can we hire you? Because it's not easy, <laughs> right? But it works, and I think that's also the I really look at now. It's like what problem are we solving? It's like, well, product, great, you know, video content, cost effectively and quickly, and the team to support it. That's it. That's what we're doing, and and I think that's where you know the the ten or fifteen year journey of entrepreneurship. You kind of get to that, and then now you can make decisions. Are like, okay, that doesn't matter. That matters. That matters. This doesn't matter. Hey, you're doing it to 80% good enough. Awesome. Keep going. You're rocking. (laughs) You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. So um, I think out of business necessity where video came and where the markets went, and I always knew, like even three or four years ago, I'm like, everybody's going to know Upwork. Why is that? Like agencies have used that for a secret forever. I'm like, why would that be a secret? Mr. Customer, you got Upwork. You can hire them directly. What's the problem? You don't want to manage them. We'll manage them for you, right? Like that's kind of where, and I love transparency. I don't hide anything you know, I should be more strategic. I'm like, I'm not, I don't hide anything. So it just kind of naturally came up. I learned the culture. I learned what's important to them, how they value family. And, you know, I keep empowering them. They're like, what about if we make a mistake? I'm like, don't worry about it. Just who cares? Nobody's gonna die, <laughs> but we're gonna lose some money. I'm like, no, don't worry about it. That doesn't matter. So I'm like, empowering them. It's super cool to see that. How like what's important to them It's a whole? There's no they work so hard. I'm telling them stop working. <laughs> I told one of my senior, I'm like, you check your email, you're fired, <laughs> because they don't have that understand that concept. So um, it's being awesome, and I'm really passionate. I'm like, I, I want to grow to like a company of a hundred beautiful people, mostly women there, because I just want to empower them and. I think it's going to happen. And I think we have really good visions and it was kind of meant to be.
1: Do you see yourself expanding into some other geographies to have some diversification in your, your labor force? Um, you know, different parts of the world are kind of volatile. And and does that ever cross your mind?
0: hundred percent. You know, we do a lot of celebrations, right? We do like, you know, daily huddles, right? And you start off, we celebrate, what are you celebrating? And my team says, yeah, I'm celebrating electricity today. And I'm like, right wow i have nothing to complain about i'm like kids come here nothing i'm like here come here (laughs) what your ps5 is not working because your controller ran out of batteries come here i'm "I'm gonna i'm gonna show you what the real world is so you know knock on wood it hasn't impacted much but you're right the politics stuff there's sometimes in there i'm like really i'm like every time i talk to them, i'm like yeah i'm good we're happy you know, I'm, I've nothing to complain about, but from, uh, as, as we grow for sure, like to do other different contents from that safety perspective in terms of like, um, doing it, but I'm also a super redundant kind of guy. So we're so processed, you know, heavy and oriented. I don't have like one team member can do everybody else's job. I did that. I always had a I love technology for being a little bit of a geek guy, so I love servers and scaling servers. And I'm like, why can't we do that with you know people? Why can't we do that with procedures and processes? So I've uh, in the last year, we didn't kind of really acquire any more customers on purpose. We just really processed everything to the point where you know, everything's driven by KPIs and we can go, hey, if some person's sick, take the time off. Like they have massive families in Pakistan, like really big families. Right. And so somebody's always kind of getting sick or something. And like, you have to like, we're not messing with that. If your family needs you, like you stop, you put your laptop down and the rest of the team's got you. That's why we got Asana. That's why we got Slack. That's why we got procedures and processes and playbooks. It's all in there. And so that's always my vision for it. And I think that's also, you know, keeps our customers in it. Uh, But in the future, for sure, we can go like, uh, you know, the Philippines is a good place to go. Uh, Lithuania, that's also a great place to go. We even have like South Africa and some of those ones are, I've done some testing in South America and different things in different cultures, but yeah, I think it's a global workforce is, you know, it's awesome. Yeah. And it could be all done, right? Technology, it's all there.
1: Did your team start by finding people on Upwork and, and it was, you sent one project off and and it went so well, you said, Hey, I want to do more with you. And, and from there was it like, who, who do you know?
0: Yeah, once I learned the culture, and then once I learned the right the people to get and where to get them, and what we're looking for, and I was like, the, and then it's like, who do you know? And they know a lot of people, right? Like Western culture is really hard to find people sometimes. Well, their families are so big they know it, <laughs> right? They know each other people and who they work with, and uh, so we've been super lucky to to be able to do it to find great people, and especially at the early stages when one day one week you're doing this, the other week you're doing that that one, and they've never seen digital tools, and right? now they're like pros at, you know, a Sonitas, KPIs, metrics in a heartbeat, right? That's another thing that also, you know, it came out. So it's a beautiful thing. And I sometimes get on these huddles and they start talking Urdu. That's their language, Urdu, right? And then I'm like, and then they, I get on the call and they stop and they change to English. I'm like, no, keep going. It's cool. I want to hear you guys. Because <laughs> right? they're like, you just like get it on. It's like, so we're totally multicultural. I'm like, I'm the only English dude. Um, and it's awesome. I mean, and especially even now, like the editor's, On the full team, sometimes they don't speak English, but we have such processes and AIs that you can just, it's going to be, you know, it doesn't really matter where a person is and what they are. And especially with YouTube and if you give, if you just believe in people and you give them like, I've always treated them like, no, whatever you guys need, let's make sure you're sleeping, make sure your family's good. And that's the first place and they love it. I'm super, um, you know, honored to have them.
1: What are the biggest cultural differences?
0: Oh, I think the female work ethic is extraordinary because they do everything. And then I just want to empower them because they empower me, right? Like that's how it works. I think, again, it's just like we in the Western culture, yes, we have to, you know, keep the freedom going, the whole nine yards, but we're very lucky. So I think that the cultures that they live in, sometimes, you know, we went to all working at home because just from a safety perspective you know, women traveling in the evenings is not safe. You know, there's those culture things, you know, they have regular brownouts and regular things that are coming out that you're just like, wow, that just still happens quite often everywhere else. That's a big culture shift. And I think one of the biggest ones was like, I do a lot of empowerment for them to believe in themselves to make decisions. Cause that's another thing I've learned is like, here's like people are like, of course I'm right. And they're like, no, we don't believe that we're right. And I'm like, no, you're always right. I always tell, we have a laughing joke. I'm like, What's Peter going to say? Yes. Because <laughs> give me your idea. We have like, hey, if it's a problem, give me three solutions. And what do you think you're going to implement? I'm like, yes. Right. So I think that was a culture shock. It's a great one because I love to empower. But that was like, you know, their belief and saying, hey, it's okay uh, to make decisions. And I'm really trying to like, I, one of the things that I'm actively trying to learn how to do is to make leaders, not managers, which is harder to do than I thought. But once you turn them into it, like how well it's running, how well they're doing, it's amazing of where people have real, they've had no understanding of technologies or saunas or workflows or, you know, uh, Google drives or any of that nature. They came from a a paper-based, you know, educational system. And then within months, they're driving strategies and doing things for, you know, massive organizations worldwide with much faster turnaround and accuracy than anything else. I think some of our biggest problems right now is just sometimes we can't get the spelling right from the editors, right? Sometimes we misspell the stuff on videos that it drives our customers nuts. I'm like, look, if that's the worst thing that we're doing, you know, misspelling something, I'm okay to do that. That's okay. You know, that's a, that's a mistake that we can kind of work on. So I'm in awe as to what, you know, that side of the world, how awesome they are and how hard they work, right?
1: From a workflow standpoint, do you handle the customer interaction? You're the face to the customer and then you're you're conveying things back to them? Or do you have your team in Pakistan actually interacting directly with customers? They run the calls fully. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they run the calls fully. Yeah. I had to put definitely a couple of, like strategic people in there. Right. So, so natural people, I have like a perfect mix of more creatives and more structure. And you put them together and you give them a good process, they do it. And of course, I'm always available. Right. So my clients always know it. In fact, I usually get on calls. I'm like, hi. And they're like, okay, Pete, can you get off? Because we need to get work done. <laughs> right. So, so I'm actually slow down the process. But no, I've even this new package that we're launching. Nab, she's one of our customer success manager. She's gonna be the creative, she's gonna be a remote video director. She's phenomenal. Right. So I think it's just, I've also, I mean, I've been in video for such a long time where I've been able to process everything to the little detail. So then I set them up for success. You know, I don't set them up for failures. I taught them how to ask questions if they don't know. Right. And just really have, you know, confidence and accuracy and how to communicate with a client. And those are kind of the basic stuff. And I think also me, you know, having all those thousands of hours of training helps. (laughs) Right. So I can articulate the things. But no, they're running calls and they're doing everything. And then they interact with the entire editing team. And we have, I mean, the total of us right now is about a dozen with the creatives and, and it's a humming system. I think we, you know, last year we produced about 400 or 500 videos. And on average, we have about three to 5,000 tasks a month in Asana that we plan through. It's a machine and it's just getting started.
1: What parts of the job do you enjoy the most?
0: Floor charting processes. It's, I don't know, I think, I think creating something, Ooh, there's a problem. Like how do we solve it? Right. Like that's kind of the, I think that's feeds my ADD brain right now. I'm way more, I was talking to one of my mentors and I was telling him about like, Hey, I think I need to help people in the future. Like heal some of the stuff through the the anxious attachment style or the stuff that I went through and I really learned. And cause I see a process in my head. He's like, dude, ever since I know you be creating processes or right, that's all I've been doing. And it's right. Like I have these like, you know, kitchen cupboard. They're like this acrylic stuff. And you can write whiteboard markers. I've filled that thing so many times, right? I'm like, okay, that, that's where I get lost. So I think that's the stuff I really enjoy. Obviously, talking with customers and empowering them is is awesome. And empowering my team, you know, I think at the end of the day, if you make somebody's day better and you empower them, there's nothing better, right? That fills your cup. So, but yeah, processes, process. I kind of love the process stuff.
1: What do you enjoy the least? What do you wish you could just have somebody take away?
0: Uh, Running the company? (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, it's a good question. I think, you know, the financial stuff. Yeah, it's getting okay. I I definitely started to like embrace a little bit of the numbers and you got to go perspective. Writing my own content and marketing, like right now we're just redoing the website and you know, the fastest way is for me to write it because I'm in it. I see it. I know what it is, and especially working with chat. You know, you can do it. I hate that stuff. But I know now I'm like, I just got to grind through it and get to it, you know, to get where we want to get to. I would say sometimes emails or sometimes doing the stuff that is just a mundane task where just my brain doesn't have enough dopamine to do. And then, but I'm learning to just lean into the stuff that's difficult and hard and do it and push through it to rewire the brain. But yeah, there's, you know, I think there's the 20, 30% of stuff you're like, yeah. And it'd be nice. Like, I can vision, you know, having a bigger team and you have somebody marketing and stuff and you have everybody. But at the end of the day, you're still going to have to make decisions. You're still going to have to do the hard stuff. So that's kind of what I'm learning now as an entrepreneur. It's like, dude, I'm either going to embrace it or I'm going to do something else. Right. Because I'm like, I think at some point, like, okay, the stuff that drives me nuts, I'm like, yes, I can get rid of it. But I've heard that too. Gary Vio, we said it's like, every time you open your phone, there's going to be problems. There's always are. The bigger you get, the more problems there are. So I'm like, at what point are you going to go? I'm just going to enjoy the problems. <laughs> I'm going to stop whining about it. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy the problems. Uh, and I think that's kind of where I'm in my life right now, where I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to see if I can, you know, switch my mindset and obviously still work towards like the stuff that I do not want to do. You know, I definitely want to outsource that and buy back my time, as Dan Martell always says.
1: This won't be true for everybody, people in the medical profession (laughs) in particular. You made a comment earlier, you were talking about your team and they were afraid to make mistakes and you used a phrase that I actually use around here from time to time. Nobody dies. Right. (laughs) Man, I think that when you have that mentality like you talked about, that every time you open your phone, there's going to be problems. If you can couple that with the mentality that Nobody dies, at least again in our world. Yeah, exactly. I think that makes it a lot easier to deal with the problems or or at least the mental aspect of how you deal with the problems.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I think it's a hundred percent correct. I think personally I made problems way bigger than they were just from my fear based background. It's like, you know, making a customer mistake or or if some customer said something, you know, that was negative. Now I'm like, tell me what's wrong. <laughs> tell me where we're messing up, right? If you're not going to tell me, I'm going to sell you your survey, right? So yeah, I, I think especially with the, like the team in, in Pakistan, sometimes like, you know, making mistakes for three or 400 bucks is uh, a massive deal for them. For us is like, well, it's part of business. It's not going, nothing's going to happen. Or if we re-edit, a video or if we got to do it, we got great partners. So I think that is like, you know, what's the worst case scenario? And I think this is also just from a human perspective. Like we always imagine the worst case scenario. And I heard that that was from, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Jeffrey Hazlett. He was the CEO of Kodak. And he actually said that I met him a couple of times. And he goes, yeah, if somebody make a mistake, nobody dies. Right. And you're like, right. And his mistakes he was talking about, they're like millions of dollars, <laughs> And so it's like, you kind of look at it going, ah, you know, nobody's going to die and, you know, we're all going to learn from it. And, you know, I think that's a big thing to kind of live by.
1: Definitely. Three kids. Mm -hmm. What do you think they'll end up doing? Will they go on to start their own businesses as well? Would you advise them against it? Would you do like your dad did and say, don't trust anybody, go do it yourself?
0: That's uh, a, so my oldest one, I think is going into real estate because her mom's in real estate and if you look at the time versus output from a revenue perspective it's a really good business <laughs> so i think we we talked about that plus she really likes it and i think the other two kids you know we're talking about what you know my youngest who's we talk about what he wants to do and he's still kind of floating back and forth but we do talk about quite a bit the importance of money finances which i think that i certainly my you know where like money is important. And, you know, people say, well, money doesn't buy happiness. I know, but it does help a lot. Right. So, and I think that what I teach the kids was like trying to, there was a couple of times where, you know, we're like, you know, we teach the kids lessons, like, Hey, cool. You're going to help us with this chore or something. And here we'll give you the money. And then you're like, that's it. I worked that hard for that. I'm like, yes, there's your lesson, right? (laughs) There's the value of what you're doing or, you know, a couple of times they start an understanding going on, man, that's really expensive. If you look at this economical state, I'm like, okay, you're 13, you're starting to understand it. So I think that, you know, and then combining it, I think, you know, that people say uh, there's that misconception, not misconceptions, like, okay, follow your passion and follow his, your stuff. I'm like, no, I'll make 20, 80, 20% of the time is going to suck. But there's definitely like, there's, you can choose what careers or different things to do. Why? But I know my youngest one is starting to see is like, no, I, I like the freedom. I like the time. I like to be able to like not control my stuff. And I'm like, so he's getting it. But I'm like, all right, buddy, but we got to let's learn how to create value, right? So I'm pregnant. So like, okay, if you're going to start something, it's got to have value. You're going to have to solve a problem. And I think those are the things that I keep teaching my kids to like, those are the kind of the real business lessons, timing, value, and you're solving a problem and people want it right. And there has to be also competition. If you don't have competition, it's not a good sign. <laughs> you're not revolution. you're not Google. You're not Facebook. Forget that. <laughs> you know, you don't know, focus on the stuff. So I think that's a little bit of a different conversation than my dad had with me.
1: I think about the story you told about being in school in Czechoslovakia. And even if you aced the test, you weren't able to earn a top grade. I think about entrepreneurship where there are no caps, there are no limits, you put in the effort, and it doesn't always work out, but oftentimes it does. Do you think that that experience, maybe not just that one isolated kind of part of being there, but do you think that that has been the big driver, the big motivator for you to continue this entrepreneurial journey?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think I'm wired from that experience, never to stop and never give up. And I think that that quest to kind of heal the child <laughs> has been so strong. And I think that's part of that whole journey. Like I was, you know, when, when I started this company or a kind of a couple revisions, you know, you're quite privileged where, you know, when you got a team behind you and I went through some hard times where I literally had to dig in and I work with my therapist, and I had to rechange some uh, neural pathways in the brain one by one. Which means every two or three minutes, I had to stop and do specific exercises. Well, I did that for two weeks, and I maybe worked one hour a day, right? And that was the gift right from the entrepreneurship journey. So I'm like, can I ever give that up? I'm like, no, you know, I'm not going to give that up, right? I, and I think that's also what's driving me. And I'm for sure like, and I've seen that before in the past is like, you know, the people who've had really, really, and I've heard this before. It's like, you can only go as high in life as you being low. <laughs> right. And I know people that are just like this normal, nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. But I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> My life's like, I'm, all like nah, I'm just embracing it. Like that's the embrace. And I think that's from the past, from you know, the trauma from the learning, my parents had, you know, a bunch of successes and a bunch of failures where, you know, we're like, yeah, we're selling the house because we can't afford the mortgage. Let's go. You know, my dad even too, he was like, he was what mid fifties when we had nothing and he had to go back to Czech Republic and start something and sure enough made it happen. Right. So there's, that's another thing that you obviously see from the outskirts. And, and I think I've really in the last year really started looking at all of my the failures in life as beautiful gifts and learning things and going, man. And it's like now I ain't giving up. I'm just (laughs) starting. Yes, body's a little bit more tired in the morning. You know, when you hit the gym, it's a little more creakier and all a little more yoga. Right? It's like, okay, you know, you can't, you know, more sensitive to food now. You gotta eat clean. But I think the mind is just
1: getting started. I imagine that with right click and hue stream. There were probably some, some dark days. Yeah. And you talked just a second ago about, you can only go as high as you, you've gone low. If you could go back and talk to yourself, knowing what you know now on those darkest days, what would you tell yourself?
0: Very good question. I think that one is, you know, when you first are in it, you think this is it, right? You're like, you're in it and you're like, this is it. This is the lowest point. This is how it's going to be. There is no end. And in reality, the upswing is right around the corner, right? It's like, it's like when people talk about recession, we're going to hit a recession. I'm like, yeah, the average recession lasts like six to eight months. It's not that long, right? Yeah. It's a crappy time. It's not that long. People are going to resettle whatever. It's not going to be uncomfortable, but it doesn't last that long. It doesn't last decades. And I think if I went and said, look, when you're in that, you know, look around, you know, let go of the rosy colored glasses, look at the truth. Right? So the questions that you're asking yourself, if they make you feel uncomfortable, get to them because that's going to show you the truth, like lean into the discomfort, know that the stuff can change in a week and it usually does, right? It usually changes in a week, like it changes fast. And then that I think what I would say, and Hey, you're going to have this again and again and again. And that's just, it's not only entrepreneurship, but it's life. And I think that's the whole thing is like, you know, what I always teach my kids Is like, look, you're going to happiness is one out of 17 or 20 emotions, you know, sadness and feeling guilt or feeling shame. You don't want to stay in there, but it's going to happen and it's okay to feel those. I had a phenomenal therapist one day told me it's like, you know, emotions are like a wave and where we really screw up as adults is we, we try to force the wave not to break. (laughs) And you're holding up all this water and you're spending all this energy just trying to go, nope, no, nope, I'm not going to feel it. It's not going to break on me versus like, let it break, feel it. It's going to last probably a couple hours. It's going to suck. And then guess what? You're going to feel way better. <laughs> so I think that's like, you know, going back to entrepreneurship, look, learn from it. There's always a lesson. Everything kind of happens for a reason. You know, open your eyes. Yeah, it's going to suck. You know, so get off the booze, make sure you eat well, get a lot of sleep, exercise as much as you can. You know, and you will get through this a lot quicker than you think.
1: So that's looking back and there's a lot of great wisdom. I love that image of trying to stop the wave. You, you, you can't stop the wave. No. Let's talk about looking forward. What's next?
0: Ooh, yeah, I'm really excited about in house version 362, whatever, <laughs> whatever version we're on. <laughs> um, I even got to over the guilt going back. I'm like, I've changed the company name so many times. Like, no, nope, going back to in house. I'm really excited for this model. I think for the first time, everything's like, it's the right place. I made the decisions by data, like it feels good. I've never been this energetic in a long time. And I think that's a lot of like the self-growth I've worked on, but I'm really, I'm also seeing a vision where like, this is not an end-all and a be-all. I like, I want a great company. It's going to produce a lot of great people. It's going to do financially well. I can see it. And then I'm like, okay, then I want to really lean into potentially helping people because I love creating content. I've created so many courses. Like I'm thinking, I'm like, why did I go through this? Right? Like, why did I go through training? failure. you know, I had a great marriage for 18 years, didn't work out. I got these three kids. I'm an emergrid kid. I got PTSD. I get ADD. I got all these stories. I never given up. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I have a phenomenal team and I can grow a phenomenal company that knows how to acquire customers online, focuses on video content, and we can dominate in video. And I've, I've created like thousands of videos. And then I've trained people. I'm like, okay, I got to combine them right? Like, that's my, like, and I love neuroscience. I love all these things. I don't have PhDs or anything, but I have like several therapists tell me, Peter, you have two honorary PhDs because you come in here so freaking educated. (laughs) I'm like, all right. So I just got to believe in myself. Okay. So I think those combinations, like really what it is, is like, that's kind of what I'm like, man, I got, I'm like, I'm ready to kind of, I feel like I'm just starting again. And I feel like I got a ton of energy and passion and And I'm also committed, like financially, it's a good driver. You're like, okay, you know, that's always a good thing to go. But there's just a lot of good things happening that are colliding at the right time, you know, both from my perspective and everything. And I think also having a digital media company behind me will help me accelerate helping a lot more people on a broader scale, which I love to do. What that exactly looks like, I don't know. I have some ideas, but I told myself I cannot start anything until 2025. (laughs) Because nope, I need to focus on on twenty twenty four for uh, you know scaling in house. So it's simple scale. Those are my two words that I'm focusing on: simple scales, right? Simple scales, fancy fails. But I'm really, you know, I'm seeing like, hey, what "quote unquote" a purpose is, or why I've gone through, and what I naturally love to give and to help people. And yeah, it's some pretty exciting times. You know, I'm sure there's gonna be hard times. It's gonna suck <laughs> Get up at five o'clock in the morning, go to the gym. It always sucks, but. You know, I think
1: there's some good stuff happening. Peter Matichek, thank you for being on In the Thick of It. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's been a true pleasure. That was Peter Matichek, founder and CEO of WorkflowX. To learn more, visit WorkflowX.io. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us.